Hi, this is Rhonda Jackson Joseph, author of Monstrous Domesticities, and you are listening to HP Lovecast Podcast. Hello, and welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, where we collect brief interviews by creators with new or upcoming projects. We'll open with the guest reading an excerpt from their project and follow up with an interview proper. Transmissions posts on the last day of each month. I am Nicholas Dyack, pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, industrial music, horror studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. And I am Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on the horror and spy genres. Nicholas and I co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarlane. This is a very special episode of Transmissions, as all of our guests are alumni from our Anne Radcliffe Academic Conference. First, we will be joined by Farrah Rose Smith, who will be discussing the re-release of her short collection, short story collection of One Pure Will. Next, Rahel Sixta Schmitz talks about her debut and her very topical nonfiction book, The Supernatural Media Virus, Virus Anxiety in Gothic Fiction Since 1990. We conclude by interviewing the very prolific Kevin Wetmore, about his newest scholarly tome, Eaters of the Dead. Farrah Rose Smith is a New York-based author, scholar, reviewer, and literary agent. Her work has appeared in a variety of journals such as Vestarian and Dead Reckonings. She has penned the novellas Anonmia and the Almanac of Dust and Eviscerator. Her short story collection of One Pure Will was originally released in 2019 by Aegis Press, but has recently been re-released in an expanded edition by Trepidatio Publishing. So I will be reading an excerpt from the title story of the collection called Of One Pure Will. Here come the eight string days of autumn, dreamlike and quivering, glowing above me. The moon rolls back as solitary and as quiet as my daughter was. Gloom moves through these villages. Willows sigh to the ground, their branches weeping as one weeps upon the death of a child. There are more ecstatic days behind these, removed from the turbulence of guilt. A blue blanket of air folds over me as I carry her across the street. Fair light upon my brow, the heat within my heart. We covered the house together with white cloth after her mother left, a choice against the usual mourning of death. She took her rightful position in the world and I take up the loss of two at once, losing the elusive mask of manhood. I walk home with my daughter, hand in hand. The dirt of the streets sweep past our feet. I have carried her through these avenues and lanes, embracing the cheers, the torment, my own eyelids tiring from the garden of sleepless nights, Women in colorful dresses watch us as we pass in black and white, questioning my emptiness, my estrangement, detachment. Only some are healed by the power of closure. I have conquered nothing in this way. In the death of my first wife, the departure of my second, my daughter is so little, so aware of the comings and goings. 
a daughter of autumn, always sleepless and dreaming tides of elfin gladness. Weekly walks in the park became strained, an artifice for this little girl. She does not belong in the world. Every evening, I walk with my daughter through the city park, through the gardens at dusk. She remarks on the color of the glow, the coolness of the breeze. My strange desperation makes me quiet. I sit with her and read stories, epics, tales, and terrors to dim the fading cloud of motherhood behind us. I hug her, folds of copper hair flowing over my arms. I want to change her story, but I cannot. Have we reached the end of the tale, Elliot? She calls me Elliot, not father. I tuck her in gently, kissing her forehead, turning out the lamp. I hear rapid knocking on the old oak door. My first daughter, Claire, comes through the entryway, her lips blackened by root milk, ever ailment lurked behind her wax-like skin. I have contended with this creature of deceit in more obscure rooms of night. There is no bitterness so disembodied from the soul of man than that which resides within her. Yet somehow, she is mine. She glares frighteningly, seeking out my little one, tales of a broken childhood glistening in her eyes. Does Sage sleep? She asks. Cities of calm in her deep voice. Long silence passes. This she holds against me. Leave this house, I demand. A penetrating look, and she weaves her feet from me, gliding away, the bulk of her plum skirt flowing behind her. A phantom framework of resentment. Thank you. We are joined by Farah Rose Smith today. Farah, it is wonderful to see you. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Well, we're here to talk about your collection of One Pure Will. So tell us overall about your collection. Pitch it to us, uh, sell it to us. Okay, so this collection has stories in it that range from when I first started hanging around the weird fiction scene in 2014 as a part of a little book club in Providence, all the way up to, I'd say, the most recent stories from last year. Um, and I'd say my overall style is a more lyrical, decadent style of horror, and also there's some science fiction in there. Um, it's the kind of they're the kind of stories you want to sit and kind of absorb and, and taste and, and um, really kind of derive some thought from. They're not quick reads, but um, I, I, I think they're, I hope they're unique in what they try to do. Um, and they encompass a, what I consider to be my, the first chapter of my writer life. Um, because I've noticed that just in the past year, my writing style is changing a lot. So it's nice to have the book that documents my writing from a certain period of time. Well, that's really fascinating to um, think of it in those terms. Um, can you can you tell us, Vera, how what was the the catalyst for you starting this collection? So, around twenty seventeen or eighteen, I was realizing I was getting up to a point where I was submitting stories to anthologies, and um, I started to see uh, some of my colleagues have collections being released from uh, the small press and that was really encouraging to me to see that the people who I'd been kind of striving with along the way were also uh, making these next steps towards pulling a collection together so I um, initially gathered the stories that I had at the time and I went to a few small presses uh, didn't work out for a while and then uh, I did have an initial version come out from Aegeus Press 
Um, so that was kind of the first stage of, of, of trying to pull it together. And then this kind of second stage is, um, it's coming out from Trepidatio Publishing. Um, I worked with uh, the editor, Scarlett Algie, who's a wonderful editor. Um, I had reached out to her about the possibility of bringing it back. And so, um, which, you know, it's nice when, when a collection can have two lives um, and, and reach different audiences. Now, now, since this is a re-release, did you have to do like any edits or changes or updates or additions to this collection? Yeah, so the original collection from Aegeus was a collector's edition. It was a beautiful book, um, but there was a limited number. I think there were like 300 copies. Um, and it was great, but it, it didn't get to all the people I really wanted it to get to. Um, so this second time around, I have five new stories uh, of newer works um, that are, I think, a little bit more reflective of what I'm writing like now, um, or, or serve as kind of a bridge between the first era of writing and this new one. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much the, the only difference. I mean, there's a new cover uh, from Don Noble. He did a really beautiful cover for this. Um, Sean Leonard went through and uh, did additional edits. Um, was a great, they, both Scarlett and Sean were great editors to work with. And it really was a wonderful experience. And I know, experiences with small presses can really vary and I've had you know different experiences um so yeah it was it was really wonderful to pull this one together so so the first edition is an out of print limited edition it's not out of print um I believe there are still copies available uh the rights went out you know a year after it had come out so I was free to um to find a press that could put it out on a broader basis so if people are if people read the trepidatio version and they do want the collector's item, I still think they can, uh, they can find that. Um, I, I know I'm a sucker for, you know, limited, you know, editions, hardback, ribbon, you know, stuffed inside, signed and numbered, book plated, slip case, embossed, all. <laughs> yeah, GS Press is great for that. Yeah, GS is, has beautiful books. They're, they're gorgeous books. Um, and I recommend checking out their catalog. What was uh, a story that was most representative of your earlier writing um, from the first uh, incantation of this collection to maybe the, the more recent writing? What, was, what might be most representative today for you? So I think for the earlier stories, it would have to be, uh, there's a story called Time Disease and the Waking City. This was a story I originally wrote as um, an entry in the Necronomicon convention um, memento book. Uh, I'm not sure which year, it was either 2015 or 2017. Um, and that story, I think Lovecraft is an immense influence on me, uh, especially you know, being from Rhode Island and, and being very immersed in that um, scene for, for a long time. And I, I felt like that story both captured my um, kind of, you know, the essence of, of being a kind of individualistic person living in the Providence area, as well as someone who had a, an appreciation for a more um, archaic or early 20th century style of writing. Um, so I, I think that that story embodies a level of kind of classical cadence and expertise that I really am proud that I was able to reach. Um, as for the newer stories, uh, there are, so there are five new stories and they 
the real difference in them is that I, with the earlier stories, I was using different um, experimental techniques in writing. So I would do, you know, variations on cut-ups or um, different types of experimental technique, usually to combat my um, extreme procrastination or inability to <laughs> string thoughts together. Uh, that's not so much what I'm doing now. I've found myself kind of not using that as a crutch anymore. Um, but I do have this new method of writing where I'm speaking, and this also ties into my, you know, kind of disability end of being a writer, where I, I'm finding that I'm more easily able to complete stories if I'm speaking them aloud, almost like an improvisational vocal writing style. Um, and one example of that was the story called The Irrational Dress Society, which originally came out, it was released by um, Nightscape Press on the Weird Whispers website. Um, and that was kind of, it was, it was written in that way, but it was also very inspired by the reading I was doing at the time um, in school, which is I, uh, for my undergraduate study, I was, um, I just recently transferred from like the undergrad world to grad world, and I'm still immersed in the Russian Silver Age uh, and symbolist novels, most specifically Andre Bailey um, and his style of symbolist writing. And I was very inspired by two of his works for that piece, which are called, uh, one is called Kotik Lateyev and the other is called Petersburg, which is a very famous uh, Russian novel, maybe more well-read uh, in Russia more so than America. But yes, that story, The Irrational Dress Society, and it's about this, um, this person who has been wronged and comes to this um, public event and has this kind of very... Um, strange and frightening speech that is, um, you know, vampiric in its way of, of pulling attention from the crowd. And, and it's, it's, um, it's theatrical and uh, it's, it's, I hope it's as weird as I, <laughs> as I wanted it to be, but yeah, I, I feel like that one serves as a bridge to the, the new era of writing that I'm coming into. Very cool. Well, excellent. Yeah. yeah. So, so the collection, you know, it's a document of, you know, your early career it's got a, you know, awesome new cover. It's had great editorial work, but what else, what else are you proud of with this collection, you know, with the contents and when your accomplishments with it? I'm really proud that I was able to stay true to what I wanted to do through each, with each story. You know, each of these, uh, most of them were published in either magazines or anthologies. Um, you know, like, for example, one story, um, uh, in the way of Eslin Mendegast, that came out through Vastarian um, and a literary journal. And, and I found that I, each story was a little gem kind of encompassing uh, not only a time, but experience I had, experiences I had with writers and editors and colleagues or experiences I had at, at conventions. And, and it's not that the stories are in any way um, autobiographical because they're not. And I know there's a tendency to think that uh, women write in that way, which which I don't, but it's that there are different kind of energies and and abstract memories and things kind of encompassed in this book that make me very proud of it. And also just the idea that I was working with all these people who really let me be what I wanted to be and let me write what I wanted to write without uh, pushing a lot of ideas about being commercial or or having to appeal to. Um, you know, things that I didn't really feel like I was capable of writing. So it's, for me, it's a very honest book, uh, even if it's a more, um, if the stories are more opaque or abstract, it's still a very honest 
um, kind of landscape of what I was both working on, writing, and living. And as we start to wrap up the interview, it goes so quickly, I would love to hear, uh, Farah, what you would like readers to take away from reading this collection. I would love readers to feel like they were brought to a place where they were thinking a little differently about different topics, maybe thinking differently about the way they can write. Um, I'm not a very plot-driven person, but there are artistic moments that I think certain types of writers and readers can appreciate, and I would hope that they I mean, it's not the type of book you come away smiling from, that's for sure. But uh, I hope that they can have an interesting, even if nightmarish experience with some of these stories. Thank you so much, Farah. Um, I would agree. I, I feel like you have very thought-provoking writing. And, and I liked how you said there's a decadence about your writing. I, that definitely comes through. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you so, so much for having me. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, uh, Farah. We hope you have a great uh, rest of the week and we are excited for of one pure well that drops later this week. So super congrats. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Our next transmission is from Rahel Sixta Schmitz. Rahel is a pop culture scholar of the sci-fi and horror genres. She is a member of the German Lovecraft Society and writes to a variety of journals and periodicals. Her debut work, The Supernatural Media Virus, Virus Anxiety in Gothic Fiction Since 1990, was just published this summer and finds extreme topical relevance in our pandemic times. In June 2009, a thread on the forum somethingawful.com asked users to participate in a Photoshop challenge involving the creation of images displaying a paranormal feature. One user, named Victor Serge, uploaded two grainy black and white images in response to this call. These pictures showed a faceless and uncannily tall figure in a suit lurking in the background of each photo. The creature was referred to as Slenderman by the user. Slenderman became a highly successful internet myth almost instantly. He was a figure of crowdsourced online mythology. Numerous users added their own manipulated photographs, drawings, and short stories too. Some even created web series and video games. A feature film entitled Slenderman was released in 2018. All of these creations have one thing in common, an obsession with the eerie Slenderman. Due to its origin, the Slenderman myth has proven to be highly mutable and thus it cannot be pinned down to one specific plot or narrative scheme. Some documents depict the Slender Man as having tentacles, whereas others do not. The figure abducts children and young adults in many versions, but not in all of them. The diverse web series revolving around this particular monster have furthermore added the ideas that close proximity to the Slender Man causes interference with video and audio recordings, that this creature can induce memory loss as well as violent behavior, and that becoming aware of the monster causes it to target that observer. 
The Slender Man is essentially a modern reincarnation of the tale of the boogeyman, adapted to new media technologies and infused with an uncanny notion of contagion. Slenderman travels through the links and nodes of social media networks such as YouTube, not unlike a computer virus, in order to find new victims, thereby revealing the otherwise invisible ties between users throughout the story world. The Slenderman myth is an excellent example of a trope that has occurred repeatedly in Gothic fiction over the past decades, and that I define and discuss in detail in this book. This trope is the supernatural media virus, a paranormal entity that follows the logic of contagion and that exploits modern media as well as society's interconnectedness in order to spread its malevolent influence. This trope conjoins two cultural key metaphors, the virus and the network, and pairs them with media technologies. This study explores how depictions of the supernatural media virus reflect on, negotiate, and ultimately shape anxieties regarding today's network society. An excerpt from the introduction. Welcome to HP Lovecast Podcast. We're joined by Rahel. Guten Tag, Rahel. It is so wonderful to see you. It's nice seeing you, dude. Well, Rahel, you just had your debut book come out, The Supernatural Media Virus, Virus Anxiety, and Gothic Fiction since 1990. So tell us all about it. Okay, um, so to sort of give you the high-level overview, the book is about a trope that I call the supernatural media virus. Um, so what I notice is that since roughly the 1990s, in gothic and horror fiction, there's a very specific recurring theme, namely the confluence of deadly viruses, uncontrollable networks, and uncanny media. So essentially what we have in these fictions Viruses and networks, or to be more precise, virus and network metaphors are paired with a deep and underlying media anxiety. What we have there is uncontrollable networks of all kinds, media networks, travel networks, computer networks, uh, in which viral monsters proliferate, and they often do so by means of modern day media technologies. So the most famous example for that, of course, is the Ring franchise. Uh, where we have a essentially very classic ghost, uh, which is Sadako or Samara, depending on whether you're talking about the Japanese or the American movie version. And that ghost behaves like a virus by spreading its curse by means of a deadly videotape. So everyone who watches that videotape will die after seven days unless they copy it and pass it on to somebody else. That is clearly the logic of contagion that is at work there. And that is very a very specific example for the supernatural media virus, but other narratives that I discuss in this book are the BBC mockumentary Ghostwatch from 1992, which is really excellent. I can highly recommend it. Um, then the novel Marxy, uh, then Marxy Danielewski's novel House of Leaves, as well as its transmedia extensions. So it was released in 2000 along with a companion music album and a companion novella. And finally, I discuss the Japanese horror movie Cairo from 2001, as well as its American adaptation, Pulse, from 2006. So those are all examples of what I call the supernatural media virus, where we have a monster that spreads its malevolent influence like a virus, using networks and media technologies as vectors of transmission. You know, that makes me nostalgic for when I was a young kid and had HBO in the 90s. There was this movie that always played. It was called 
I want to say it was called Ghost in the Machine, and it had who's the lady that played Indiana Jones's uh, Karen Allen? Karen Allen in it. But it's about a serial killer whose MO is he kills by getting someone's like phone book and he kills people in the phone book, but he dies. And he's, he, the, he's in the, the, like the cable. Yeah. He just goes around killing internet. people through, you know, he uses a digital phone book and stuff mm-hmm. like it. It just made me think of that really old, I don't, I don't even know if you would call it a slasher film because it was, you know, all <laughs> tech based. Yeah. This, that was, you feel that was nostalgic for that film, just hearing that. Yeah. Can you tell us what the catalyst was for for this project that seems to have been with you for, for a number of years now? It has been with me for a number of years. Um, by now, it's round about six years. <laughs> um, but the funny thing is, this whole project started actually with research that I did for an entirely different research project. Uh, namely, I was working on a piece on haunted house fictions, which I absolutely love. Um, and doing that research, I kept stumbling upon haunted house tales that had an element of virality to them. Um, so where the curse of the house didn't seem to stick to the house in itself, but it seemed to infect people. Uh, again, House of Leaves is a very fine example for that. But also the horror movie Juon, so The Grudge. Um, And this then turned out to be a research avenue entirely of its own, viral haunted houses. Only that over time, the research got detached from haunted houses. So that left me with a project on viruses, networks, and media. However, if you pay close attention to the chapters in this book, you will notice that setting still plays a central role in my analysis. And two of the fictions I discuss are still formidable haunted house tales in their own right. So that's really a relic from that original starting point, which was haunted houses. Oh, fascinating. Um, just as a side note, <coughs> did you ever see The Entity? No, that, I did not. Okay, that I believe is an early kind of haunted house, but the spirit followed the mother, even though mm-hmm. she they, they moved out of the house, the spirit kept following her. Um, and they ended up uh, like in a, a lab where they were studying this spirit. So you might might have a look. I think it's like a late 80s film, maybe like probably at the time, like when we have Poltergeist and, <laughs> you know, some of those. So that might be one of interest. It's a very disturbing, disturbing film. Anyway, it sounds very promising. Thank you. You're welcome. So we help tell us uh, supernatural media virus. What makes it? stand out from other I want to say kind of similar books that touch upon you know technology and horror or haunted house and horror or haunted house and technology or you know along those lines to large parts I would consider my book to be a discussion of outbreak narratives so stories that tell how infections come about and how they grow into epidemics or pandemics think you for instance of the movie Contagion or 28 days later, or in general, most zombie narratives, but also factual accounts, news stories, as we have them at the moment, for instance, with the COVID pandemic. The interesting thing is that usually those outbreak narratives, regardless of whether they're fictional or factual, they tend to follow the same narrative scheme. So firstly, an infection is identified. Then secondly, 
the global networks through which that infection spreads are established and discussed. Think, for instance, in movies, what you often have then is shots of epidemiological maps. In news stories, when you have, for instance, TV coverage, what you often get is shots of busy airports or train stations. So these sort of super spreading places. Uh, in a third step, we have the expertise of epidemiologists is established, how they battle the infection, essentially the epidemiological detective work they're doing. <laughs> and lastly, the infection is neutralized with the lingering threat of a new outbreak. Um, of course, this last step does not always take place. For instance, in zombie narratives, it's usually the complete apocalypse that we have. Um, but again, the interesting thing is that those steps, they apply to both fiction and non-fiction ways of how we tell stories about disease and disease outbreaks. Now, what makes my book unique is that I do not restrict myself to that medical or medicalized perspective focusing explicitly on biological infections. Instead, what I show is that you can actually take this narrative structure of the outbreak story and apply it to non-medical fictions, non-medical infections in fiction as well. You know, casting an eye on these non-medical infections tells us a lot about how we view our world at the moment, which fears we express in fiction. So it's really about gauging those cultural concerns of virality and networkness, and then in my case, in combination with media technologies. How do we see our current media technologies? I, I, I do like the idea where... Uh... <laughs> You incorporate detective work in that when you got the scientists around doing the equivalent of the Victorian era Sherlock Holmesian type detective work, but guys in lab coats in the lab. I think it's cool. That is exactly what we see happening at the moment. Again, with the COVID pandemic, you have scientists traveling the world, traveling to China, for instance, to research where did this virus actually come from? It is detective work that they're doing. At least it's detective work, how it's framed in news coverage. Yeah, and I think uh, going back to your point at the beginning about how supernatural media virus as a trope, how that actually fits in and, and is an interesting way and, and very intuitive way to actually look at the subject matter and, and just kind of looking at what's happening today as tropes that we've had before. So that's it, it kind of brings it all back together. Um, I'd love to hear... What are some of the elements that you're most proud of with this, this project, besides getting your doctorate? <laughs> Congrats. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so actually, one of the things that I try to accomplish is exactly what you just said, Michelle. So what I set out to do is I try to show how there are multiple monsters appearing in Gothic and horror fiction throughout the past few decades that share several essential aspects to a degree where it actually makes sense to call them a very specific type of monster, namely that supernatural media virus. I mean, each narrative that I discuss uh, features a monster that also could be referred to as a ghost or a haunted house. So they all have some kind of Gothic heritage, but there's also a very new element to each of them, um, which is this element of virality, of contagion. And by coining the phrase of the supernatural media virus, by calling it a trope, a recurring theme, I try to make it possible to really focus on 
uh, these new features and these new concerns that these monsters bring to the table. And I mean, I discuss only four narratives in this book, but there's many, many more examples where we can find this trope. Uh, again, Slenderman would be an example, but also several other creepypasta. Um, there's a couple of movie, movies that feature such a virus, video games. Um, so I would really call it a very specific type of monster that we see in fiction recurring very often at the moment. And it is firmly grounded in the logic of today's world, which is a world that is networked, globalized, and prone to viral infections of all kinds, as again, we see at the moment. So what were some of the most standout things that you learned while researching and writing the book? The importance of metaphors in our everyday language. So originally, I started this project thinking of viruses and networks as fixed concepts. So essentially as fixed academic tools with which to solve academic problems. It soon turned out, however, that these terms are everything but fixed. They're metaphors, meaning that they continuously adapt new meanings. They carry a lot of ideological baggage. Um, they not only describe our surrounding world, but they actually prescribe how we should interact with it. So for instance, when I call something a virus, I also invoke notions of disease, sickness, evolution and mutation, of infection, of contagion. I also invoke notions of patients, doctors, crisis managers, hygiene, uh, safe distance. I also invoke several other metaphors that follow. For instance, um, think of politicians referring to the current pandemic as a war on COVID. So there we have suddenly a war metaphor. And we have something very similar with the network metaphor as well. These are all terms that tend to change their meanings over time, but they also still carry a lot of baggage, of ideological baggage. And again, they prescribe how we should interact with our world. And that's something that applies to most metaphors. Now, the interesting thing about it is that we can use metaphors without specifically using the word. To come back to the example of ring, it's very obvious there that how this curse works, that that is a logic of contagion. You watch the videotape, you copy it, you pass it on to somebody else. Otherwise, you die. Um, but not once in any of the incarnations or of, of the iterations of that narrative is the, is the curse referred to as a virus or a contagion. So what you see happening there is that Metaphors can do their thing, again, where they prescribe a certain worldview, where they carry all that meaning with them. They can do that thing without the term itself ever being explicitly used. And, you know, in the trope of the supernatural media virus, you have several such metaphors coming together in fiction, and that makes it really possible to explore those deep-seated anxieties pertaining to media technologies. Yeah, I was thinking about the the use of the word war and how um, I think in the 80s was like the first time that we used war more uh, related to like drugs and concepts, you know, uh, enemies that could not necessarily be seen, could not easily be identified and things like that. So th this fits perfectly within your, your uh, discourse. It also adds a, a shade of jingoism as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rahel, what, would, what do you want readers to take away from reading your book? 
a curse passed on? Is that how the book <laughs> operates? I, well, that ought to just encourage a lot of people to go out and read it then, right? <laughs> no, the, the trick is you shouldn't read it out aloud while, you know, reading it backwards. That's, you should not do that. And not in front of a mirror, right? <laughs> no, nope, never. So ideally, or what I hope to happen is that readers will remember three things in particular. Firstly, again, the importance of metaphors in our everyday language. So think critically about those terms that we use. Uh, what does it mean to call a video viral? What does the sentence, everything is connected to anything else, actually mean? But also all these other metaphors, such as, for instance, the war on drugs or the war on disease. What is entailed in those metaphorical phrasings? So that would be one thing. Another thing would be similarly to question critically that outbreak narrative that I referred to earlier, to really pay close attention to those narrative mechanisms at work, how disease outbreak is framed in fiction, but also in, in, in news coverage, for instance. And lastly, of course, I hope that readers keep an eye out for all those exciting viral monsters in Gothic fiction, because I think they're they're fascinating and a lot of fun. So, Rahel, we're coming up to the end of the interview, so we got to ask, what's next for you? So, currently, I'm working on an edited volume on the cultural reflections, cultural reflections between H.P. Lovecraft and Germany. All right. Cool. Yeah, it's Definitely going to be to back on. <laughs> it's it's going to be a German language volume. But um, we already received abstracts for many exciting essays. We have essays discussing cosmic horror in the context of German philosophers such as Nietzsche. We have um, essays focusing on Lovecraft's image of German persons as we find them in short stories such as The Temple. Um, we have papers that discuss German comics and graphic novels, German film. Um, of course, also the, the RPG Call of Cthulhu. So there's really a lot of fascinating topics there. And I think it's going to be a very interesting, but also a much needed volume, at least in the world of German academia. I, I got to ask real quick, just for a film studies perspective, is there anyone writing about, you know, taking the, the Berg film and applying it to Mountains of Madness? Not as I recall right now at this moment. We do have one abstract discussing um, ecological horror and the color out of space. Cool. Uh, film sense. adaptation, um, which makes a lot of sense. And a follow-up question, uh, Rahel. Will this be an edited volume that will be translated into English for our English listeners? Um, so there's no plans for that so far, but uh, I mean, <laughs> if we find someone interested in you know, collaborating on that, um, because this is a project that is hosted by the German Lovecraft Society, and they're always also seeking international collaborations. So I'm just leaving that suggestion suggestion here in the podcast. Okay. So listeners out there with their own imprints want to, you know, publish a translation in the next couple of years, reach out to Rahel. Please do. Well, Rahel, vielen Dank. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast to talk about your debut. We, we hope it's super successful for you. It's extremely topical, extremely relevant, and also fun. 
Thank you very much. Welcome back. Our final transmission is from Kevin Wetmore. Dr. Wetmore is a professor of both the theater and of pop culture studies. He has authored, co-authored, and edited numerous tomes, including post-9-11 horror in American cinema, Uncovering Stranger Things, The Empire Triumphant, and Portrayals of Americans on the World Stage. In this episode, Dr. Wetmore will be talking about his newest book, Eaters of the Dead. This is the introduction to Eaters of the Dead called The Fear of Being Eaten. We have an atavistic memory of being prey, a fear of being eaten alive. From Jonah and the Whale to Little Red Riding Hood to Jaws, every culture tells stories about being devoured alive. As scholar David Quammen reminds us, among the earliest forms of human self-awareness was the awareness of being meat. Yet there's another fear of being eaten, one that occurs after death. Similar to our fear of being eaten alive, every culture has stories of corpse-eating monsters. Historic tales of cannibalism or chronicles of bodies being consumed. Vampires, werewolves, and other shapeshifters, ghosts, and zombies are the cool monsters. They're popular both in myth and pop culture. Corpse-eaters, far less so. And yet the cultural history of monsters is replete with eaters of the dead, from the cyclops and ogres to ghouls and wendigos. Death the Devourer. Philip Henslow, the theater, Elizabethan theater entrepreneur, whose diary provides much information about English Renaissance theater, furnishes a list of props owned by the Lord Admiral's men, one of the preeminent theater companies of the day in storage in Henslow's, Henslow's Rose Theater in March 1598 includes one Hellmouth. A leftover from the medieval theater, the Hellmouth is a mechanical prop symbolizing the entrance of hell in the form of a giant demon's mouth. Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus is dragged into a hellmouth at the end of the play that bears his name. Many medieval mystery plays end with the last judgment in which sinning souls down for eternity are heaved into a hellmouth on stage. The image of an enormous mouth eating the dead became common in medieval iconography as well. It neither bites nor chews, but swallows the dead whole, taking them to hell. The hellmouth remained a potent image in European art for half a millennium. Death itself is a devourer. We are eaten by death. When not being consumed by death itself, we are consumed by a number of things after death. In his fascinating book, Images of Man and Death, Philip Arias observes that from the 14th to the 16th century, the iconography of death was frequently a, deco a decomposing corpse inhabited and gnawed by worms. The literal embodiment of death is a mobile corpse being eaten. That is because, in fact, we are eaten after death. The only question is, by what? Even with embalming, the body is consumed by mold, bacteria, and insects. Even sealed in an airtight metal casket, a corpse is devoured by anaerobic or putrefaction bacteria. Indeed, before the bacteria shows up, our corpses begin to eat themselves. The hallmark of fresh stage decay is a process, call, a process called autolysis or self-digestion. When you die, the enzymes in your cells begin to consume the cells that contain them. Then insects lay eggs on the corpse, preferring soft parts of the body, the entry points, eyes, mouth, open wound, anus, genitals. They do this because maggots that hatch cannot eat through human skin. Simultaneously, the bacteria in the human digestive system and elsewhere in the body, no longer inhabited by an immune system, are free to eat and breathe through the entire body. In other words, within a few hours of death, bacteria, the body itself within, and insects without, are already eating the body. 
Putrefaction in the final stage of decay is the breaking down and gradual liquefaction of tissue by bacteria. The lungs and digestive organs, which have the greatest amount of bacteria to begin with, are devoured first. Then the brain and other organs, insects, and possibly other animals will eat from the outside in. In short, all corpses, even those embalmed and buried, are eaten. The dead are consumed by insects and bacteria, by flame, by animals, and in some cases, by people. Even the word sarcophagus, which describes a box-like funeral receptacle for a corpse, literally means flesh eater, sarx plus phagos. When we place someone in a sarcophagus, the implication is the casket itself is eating the dead body. The end result of death is to be eaten by, well, something. By extension, we have a history of imagining and creating beasts that eat the dead. People who witness corpses being scavenged by dogs, vultures, hyenas, and other animals can imagine monstrous beings that do the same. Through recorded human history, we hear tales of survival cannibalism. Sometimes during periods of famine or food scarcity, the only food available is people who died of starvation before you. Whether sailors stranded in a lifeboat for months, populations undergoing famine during war or winter, or people trapped in the mountain awaiting rescue, history is full of tales of people forced to eat the dead to survive. From the Donner Party to the Great Hunger of Ireland, to the plane crash that stranded the Uruguayan rugby team in the Andes in 1972, we know the names of those who eat and those who were eaten. We know the tales of criminal cannibals, those who choose to eat the dead for a number of reasons. There is a reason the world knows the names of Jeffrey Dahmer and that Ed Gein inspired not one, not two, but half a dozen films, including the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Silence of the Lambs and Psycho, not to mention the lesser known Ed Gein and Ed Gein, the Butcher of Plainfield. We are drawn to tales of depraved cannibals. Death, both our own and that of others, causes anxiety and fear. Death is not the end, however. How the body is regarded and treated, especially symbolically and mythically within the culture, reveals how society understands death and the body. Is my body myself? How should my body be disposed of after my death? What should I fear happening to my corpse? Why are Westerners as a culture appalled by the idea of their bodies being eaten? And from there, we go into a journey about Wendigos and ghouls and celebrity cannibals, Aswang, Jinkiniki, Rakshasa, anyone and everyone who has eaten a corpse. All right, we are joined by Kevin Wetmore today. Kevin, how are you doing, sir? Uh, I'm well, thank you. As you can hear, I'm, I'm getting over a cold, so it gives me that light FM voice, but otherwise I'm doing well. How are you two? <laughs> We're doing very well, Kevin. It's great to see you, and um, thank you again for being part of HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions. Well, it's an honor and a pleasure. Great to see the two of you as well. Well, we're excited to talk about your new book, Eaters of the Dead. So tell us about it. Pitch it to us. Tell us overall, what is Eaters of the Dead? Eaters of the Dead is a survey of corpse-eating monsters and sort of a, a history of cannibalism. Um, it was rooted in the idea that virtually every culture uh, has some kind of cannibal-eating monster. Um, so we look at ghouls, wendigos, we look at cyclops, um, the, a little bit of the impetus in my other life, I'm a theater professor. And so there are some great plays out there, uh, like Seneca's Thyestes, uh, Euripides Cyclops, and of course, Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, in which people are drawn into cannibalism without their knowledge. And to me, that's sort of the most terrifying thing is not that you're a cannibal, but that you are made a cannibal by someone else, not unknowingly. And then they're like, Hey, you just ate your dad. Uh, so it's, to me, that sort of struck me as a unique area of horror that no one had ever really looked at. Um, and, and it sent me down a series of whole dark paths. So we look at everything from Lovecraft's stories about ghouls to the story of the Donner Party, Alfred Packer, the Colorado cannibal, Sweeney, uh, Sonny Bean, Sweeney Todd, 
Um, but we also look at Jin Kaniki, Australian cannibal demons, uh, hungry ghosts from China, Rakshasa from India, uh, the Wendigo, uh, the indigenous monster of North America, um, and everything from sort of Jesuit accounts of Wendigo to then psychologists talking about Wendigo psychosis to contemporary appropriations of Wendigo that, that are problematic because it's people appropriating uh, First Nations culture to sort of create a Western monster, which isn't really what it is. So it's really about a book at heart about all the reasons why people eat corpses and don't want to be eaten. And Kevin, I mean, it's such a vast amount of uh, mythologies out there, but what was the catalyst for you for this book? Uh, the catalyst was twofold. Um, one was, as I mentioned earlier, all these all these cannibal plays out there. And as a, a theater guy, I'm just like, why do we keep putting this on stage? What is the big fascination about eating corpses uh, on, in the theater? Uh, but then as I began looking around and, and uh, Reaction, the publisher has a wonderful series on cultural history of monsters and they had uh, books on vampires and shapeshifters and ghosts. Uh, and it just occurred to me, why, why is there no book on ghouls? Why is there no book on Wendigo? Um, you know, and, and it started me thinking about corpse monsters and corpse eating monsters, because uh, I have a soft spot for the ghoul. Uh, and it just occurred to me, we, no one's ever written a history of corpse eating monsters before. Uh, so I started going down that dark path. It was a, a two and a half year process. I took my family on a family vacation up to Donner Pass. We went to all the places between Sacramento and Tahoe with Lake Truckee and, and the Donner campsite. Uh, where, just as a side note, one of my favorite things ever, there's a big sign that says uh, Donner Picnic Area. And I'm like, who, who named this? Like, who thought that was a good idea? Uh, at the very least, clearly not someone with a sense of humor or maybe someone with a sense of humor. So, um, and the nice thing about being an academic uh, is I have credentials that would allow me to get into archives where I'm like contacting people in Germany or in England and saying, you have this book that's all about cannibal, you know, cannibalism in the new world that was written in 1539. Can you take a photo of these plates and send them to me? So it's just sort of fun to research and see all the different cannibal stuff out there and, and the connections between it and looking at, I mean, I'm, I keep talking about cannibals, but when I say cannibal monster, that's really a sort of wrong name for it. It's corpse eating monsters. Cannibalism is when you eat your own species. So uh, corpse eating is just when you eat the dead. So as the, the title suggests, eaters of the dead, it is about corpse eaters, not cannibals per se. It's just cannibals are human corpse eaters. So we look at Jeffrey Dahmer, we look at um, Alfred Packer, the, the uh, Uruguayan rugby team featured in the book and the film Alive and, you know, sort of, what, you know, the, these are people who have actually eaten corpses and, and what do they say about how do they approach it? So the idea was to try and be as respectful as possible. This isn't sort of lurid tell all of, and here's something that just devours livers, but a, sort of a larger snapshot of why cultures do this. And we, we sort of begin with looking at the idea of sky burial that um, in Tibet and in Persia, uh, especially among the Zoroastrians that fire is too sacred to burn bodies. The earth is too sacred to receive bodies. So we cut bodies up and feed them to animals, uh, which is what the Tibetan practice of sky burial is feeding it to vultures. And that's what the towers of silence in Zoroastrianism is. So rather than sort of lurid thing about, well, and here's a monster eating a body. It's about the, the looking at what happens to a corpse after death. And as I mentioned in the introduction, um, everybody's eaten one way or another, whether by the bacteria in your own system, insects, animals, 
claims you are eventually consumed. You know? So it's a book about corpse consumption, why it happens and why we make monsters that just do that. I think you kind of alluded to this in your answer here, you know, saying that comprehensive history of this, but I was going to say for your book, what, what, what elements do you think makes us stand out from other books that deal with corpse eating or cannibalism? Cause you know, I could think of like film studies book that looks like at Italian cannibal films, for instance, oh, yeah. and, you know, individual, you know, critters or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And certainly I, I do deal with um, cannibal Italian cannibal films. Uh, all praise to Cannibal, uh, Cannibal Holocaust, Cannibal Ferox, you know, The Queen of Cannibal Mountain, all those wonderful movies. Um, or, uh, and then there are books out there. I think Bill Campbell is his name, has a great book called Bite Me, uh, which is a history <laughs> of cannibalism. And there, there are some really amazing books on cannibalism out there. But as I just alluded to in my answer, as you said, um, it's not a book about cannibalism. Cannibalism is a subcategory of corpse eating, and it's really a book about, about corpse eating. So whereas these other wonderful books deal with a very specific, mm-hmm. you know, Italian cannibal films or a history of cannibalism or, you know, cannibal myths of the new world, because when Columbus and the, the indigenous peoples of the America met, uh, they both went away thinking the other was a cannibal. So the, the, for me, the interest is not just cannibalism, although the last two chapters deal with cannibalism, which is like eating like. Um, the first six chapters are all about monsters that eat human corpses and stories of corpse eating. Uh, so it's less humans devouring corpses than, than why a corpse gets eaten. Uh, so if you like cannibalism, you'll find a lot here to like. That's a really weird thing to say out loud. Um, but if you're interested in sort of monsters and monster theory and... Uh, Fear of the dead, fear of being dead, fear of eating, fear of being eaten. Uh, this this book goes into a great detail, a great deal of detail about how cultures have explored those fears and sometimes mitigated them and sometimes put it on the other. Uh, and and the strange structures that sometimes even evolve in response to it, what's called the law of the sea, that if your ship sinks, there are rules by which you can kill someone in a lifeboat and eat them and no one will be charged with murder. But if you do that on dry land, there's no way you're not getting charged with murder. So there's, there's like odd cannibal rules even within Western civilization. Kevin, um, what elements are you most proud of with your book? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, there's a lot to be proud of there. As, as I mentioned, it's, this is all, you know, an almost three-year labor of love. Uh, and so when you spend that much time in your life thinking and reading and researching corpse eating, uh, <laughs> just finishing it, I think, is something I'm proud of and, and not being worried out the fact that I can still eat is a good sign. Uh, although I'm, I'm very careful about what I order uh, and consume. And I have flirted with, with vegetarianism because of this book. On a more serious note, uh, the, the, the publisher is absolutely wonderful. I have loved working with uh, Michael and all the people at Reaction. Uh, I had some images. They pumped them all up as well, uh, that, where they brought in some more. So the book, if I can say so myself, just looks beautiful. I and mean, it's, it's fun to just sort of flip through and see the illustrations illuminating uh, the, the research. And I also think it's, it's just kind of interesting that how all these things sort of get tied together. And I think, I hope, if people read the book, they go through and it's fun, it's funny. There are, there are moments where I sort of point out fundamental absurdities, but it's, it is, I mean, it is a horror book in terms of, we're talking about real death. We're talking about things that happen. You talk about, you know, the Ukrainian famine and how parents were eating their children. This is not entertainment. This is part of our history. So it's, it's an entertaining book, but it's also a serious work of history. 
So I, I suppose if I wanted to get cocky for a moment, I'm proud of walking that line between an interesting and entertaining read. If you're just, if you're not an academic and you like reading about interesting, weird stuff. Uh, but if you come in as an academic, it's, um, I'd like to think the material is well handled in, in such a way that you won't be disappointed with its presentation. So there's something for everybody. Again, if you're interested in corpse reading, this is not a good Christmas present for your mom who likes Thomas Kincaid paintings, unless she buys Thomas Kincaid paintings to like draw monsters in them, in which case maybe she might like it. I don't know. <laughs> well, Kevin, we, we've actually known you for a, a number of years and we know how well, well read you are and you have many degrees and and handle many different subject matter very, very well. Um, so I'd love to hear what is one standout thing that you learned from researching this book? The one thing that struck me um, as a researcher is how everybody is somebody's cannibal. That uh, when Columbus and the other Europeans came to the new world, they're like, these people are cannibals and they use that as an excuse. Uh, and when during the Middle Passage, European slave ships would show up on the coast of Africa, they would have pots uh, boiling on deck and the Africans would assume they were cannibals. They're like, why do these people have fires going on the ship unless they're eating people? And they assume that people who were being taken away were not being taken away as slaves. They were being taken away as food. I remember reading that in Belgium, uh, King Leopold, or not, the Belgian King Leopold in the Congo, um, you know, ordered his soldiers to kill as many people there as possible. And the way that you proved that you had killed someone was by removing their hands. And so to the people in living in the Congo, seeing all of these Europeans collect baskets of hands of the dead, they assumed they were eating them. So it's this assumption that, you know, Belgians eat dead hands, eat the hands of the dead. Uh, I mean, obviously the reality was far worse, but this notion of virtually every culture when they encounter another culture fears that they're going to eat us. Um, and how that proves to be a much larger metaphor in terms of consumption. I mean, that's the other thing I suppose that I learned is, is this idea of consumption was much larger than I thought it was. And what we mean to consume, uh, to become one with, to take in. Uh, so you have animals, you have places in, in uh, Pacifica where people put the bodies of their relatives in trees for Komodo dragons to eat. Uh, and I mentioned earlier the Towers of Silence and Zoroastrianism where people very lovingly uh, and spiritually lay out the bodies of their dead to be eaten by birds. Uh, and then the ground, the, the bones sort of ground down and kept on stone so as not to dispose of the earth. So there's also this, it, it really, the, the, what struck me as odd is how much of a spiritual exploration it became in terms of looking at how the, the, the legend of ghouls was formed. Because ghouls were sort of the impetus behind the book in the first place, as I mentioned earlier. I'm a big ghoul fan and ghouls don't get any love. <laughs> but if you look, there are people like Caitlin Kiernan, and H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and a number of others who, who sort of really kind of give the ghoul the love it deserves. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to say as a fiction writer, I've written several ghoul stories and now I'm like, well, I don't want to be the ghoul guy, but I, I, I like that I'm able to give them some attention in both fiction and nonfiction. So, because uh, I find them fascinating. Well, Kevin, you've said what, um, what you think your book would attract as far as readers and caution those that are into Thomas Kincaid that maybe they want to give this a pass. Yeah. But um, those- If you can answer the question, what's your favorite Hallmark movie? Take a pass on this one. <laughs> on the other hand, if you can discuss the finer points of either Texas Chainsaw Massacre remakes or you're a Rob Zombie fan, music or film, mm -hmm. this will be a heartwarming gift. 
And on that, um, what would you want readers to take away from reading Eaters of the Dead? Aside from a filling experience. Oh, geez. Oh, good Lord. Okay, that, that's one diac. <laughs> yeah, two more and then we boot you out. Um, and, that's, and the reason why I say that is I, I had to fight so long and so hard to not make puns in this book. To not, you know, I, I would be writing and I'd write something and realize, oh, that can be taken the wrong way. And then go, you have to take it out. Uh, and then sometimes you don't have to take it out, but at least note that you're aware that you're that horrible person. So um, <laughs> in terms of what I want people to take away, well, first and foremost, I want them to be educated and entertained. I want them to enjoy reading these things to maybe learn about monsters that they had not known about. I mean, the dirty little secret of the book is behind all of these monsters is a whole bunch of history. So you learn about the Jesuits in Canada. You learn about um, the, the Colorado Territory. You learn about Japanese Buddhism uh in context where you know these sort of buddhist priests are fighting corpse eating monsters uh so there there's this sort of appreciation one of the things that i always tried to, to do was keep the corpse monster in its in its context like what is the world of you what is the world that produced this this beastie and why does it eat corpses so i want them to be entertained i want them to come away learning stuff uh i i want them to have a healthy respect for corpse eating monsters and i i suppose because i i am a teacher in a perfect world, they come away, you know, with a bunch of check marks in the list of works cited or in the bibliography going, now I need to read this book, I need to read this play, I need to go see this movie, I need to, I really want people to sort of get excited about these films. If you haven't seen Cannibal Holocaust, it's an amazing film. There are movies about Aswang and, uh, you know, I sort of, I knew about this, but once I started researching them, and this is a fun example, uh, my, my neighbors, before we moved, I lived in a condo in Los Angeles. Uh, and my neighbors were Filipino, and I told them I was working on a book about the dead, and uh, I was a little bit interested in Aswan because I had heard about them. Like, come to dinner, we can tell you. And and you know they were just really interested and supportive, and told me you know these sort of folk stories. And so that was sort of the other fun part is going to Donner Pass, talking with my neighbors, talking with all these other scholars, and just meeting people who were really enthusiastic about culture, about monsters, and and wanting to share and going, oh, the movie got it wrong, the book got it wrong. That's not even what it is. Uh, and recognizing how monsters change through time, that Algernon Blackwood's uh, Wendigo and August Derlitz's Wendigo are not the, the Cree or Ojibwe Wendigo, that these are sort of, you know, white men appropriating Native American culture to create this sort of mythos monster. But the original Wendigo itself is terrifying. And we have these stories, you know, from Jesuit priests of in the 17th century of things happening. And at the same time, the Jesuit priest going, this is communion, we're all going to eat Jesus. And the, you know, the, the Cree and the Ojibwe being like, oh, the French are cannibals. They eat their God over and over and over again. And, and, and you know, they eat his flesh and they want us to eat his flesh, but we're not Wendigo. So just sometimes seeing the cultural misunderstandings where everyone becomes each other's monster. So if I had one other hope that people would take away is, you know, know a culture before you start looking at what makes it quote unquote monstrous or what the monsters are. Uh, because monsters are always rooted in fear, and fear is always usually rooted in misunderstanding or lack of knowledge. We fear the unknown. So uh, I suppose I'm a lot less afraid of being eaten or eating the dead. I still don't want to, though. Well, Kevin, coming close to the end of the interview, sure. uh, first again, congrats on Eaters of the Dead coming out, but we know very well how prolific you are. So tell us what's on deck. What are your next projects coming out? What are they? Oh, good Lord. 
there, there are over a dozen. I have a book that already just came out at the same time. These books were sort of written parallel and have come out. The um, Devil's Advocate series, where they ask writers to tackle a single horror film and really explicate it and give its history and all that. Uh, I was fortunate enough to do the volume for The Conjuring, James Wan's film that deals with um, the Perrin haunting in Rhode Island and Ed and Lorraine Warren. So I was fortunate enough to research and write 30,000 words. It's a 100-page book. You can do it in one or two sittings. Uh, and it really just sort of explores the film The Conjuring, uh, which was a lot of fun. I have a book coming out uh, next year that I co-edited on um, uh, The Macabre on Stage, which I co-edited with Meredith Conti from the University of Buffalo. Uh, Ron Reiki and I um, co-edited a volume on Twilight Zone, which Nicholas has a chapter in that will be coming out soon. Uh, and then we have another book coming out next year on The Purge uh, called The Many Lives of the Purge. So those are all sort of finished projects that we're waiting on. I'm in the middle of editing a book on Sam Raimi and his films, uh, for which I'm doing the chapter on The Evil Dead, which is a lot of fun. I'm writing and directing my annual uh, Halloween haunt in my university's library. We're in our ninth year of doing that. So uh, we just finished casting that on Friday, which is exciting. Uh, I'm writing a book for Rutledge, uh, a, a history of monsters in the theater uh, and horror theater, which I'm in the middle of. And tangential to that, I've also been working parallel with that, a book on ghosts and Shakespeare. Down the pike, I'm really hoping to start work on a book on the theater of Ray Bradbury and the life and art of Arch Obler, the guy who made Lights Out Everybody. And I think I still owe about a dozen book chapters to a different uh, to people, uh, you know, everyone uh, from on the EC comics and goats in Lovecraft uh, to the uh, African-Americans in the films of Wes Craven uh, and Key and Peele's horror sketches uh, as forerunners of Get Out. So uh, I keep busy. I like to call it productive use of ADD. There's so many things I'm interested in. Writing is never boring, even when it's challenging. So and if I ever get writer's block, it's like, well, I can't, I, I, okay, I have to, that's why it was nice to do the Eaters of the Dead and Devil's Advocates at the same time. When I was blocked on cannibals, I could turn to Ed and Lorraine Warren. And when I got tired of Ed and Lorraine Warren, I could get back to the ghouls. Uh, and that way both were able to move forward quickly. So that was nice. So short answer, yeah, uh, I'm on Amazon. I'm on Goodreads. I have my own website, www.somethingwetmorethiswaycomes, all one word, .com. Uh, you can find stuff. Uh, there's a lot of output. It will continue until I die and probably afterwards. It is my plan to be the Tupac of horror nonfiction writers. You know, eight years after I'm dead, my posthumous collaborations are still coming out. Long after his corpse has been eaten, he's still dropping some greatest hits. There you go. Yeah. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're invited to my funeral, don't come because <laughs> everyone's going to be supplied with a napkin, a knife and a fork. The buffet opens right after the prayers are done. Kevin, we wish you continued success. Again, congrats on Eaters of the Dead. Congrats Thank on you. endeavors. And thanks for coming on the show. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to chat with you. And you know I'm a fan of the HP Lovecast. So keep up what you're doing. that concludes the final transmissions for this episode. This episode's opening bumper was provided by Rhonda Jackson-Joseph, who, like our other guests, is also an Anne Radcon alumni. Rhonda is a prolific author and essayist who has been nominated for a Bram Stoker Award. We wish her continued success.
So coming up, October programming. October is a special time of year for horror fans. It's a month of spooky, creepy, crawly things that go bump in the night. And to mark the occasion this year in October, our programming will be focused on witches' stories. Uh, we're still in the process of finalizing our reading lists and interviewees, so go ahead, subscribe. You don't want to miss an episode. And from Scholars from the Edge of Time, coming up on that podcast where we focus on sword and planet uh, genre, we'll be discussing the 2017 film Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. This episode will broadcast live Thursday, October 28th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and will be available to stream afterwards on Blog Talk Radio. If you are interested in being a guest on Transmissions, please contact us. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course you can email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. Also, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books that we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or, if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.